On this episode of This Week in Linux, we talk about some pretty big news regarding Linux's temporary leave from maintainership of the Linux kernel. Then we'll take a look at the new releases for Nextcloud, Wine, Git, Timeshift, Parrot Linux, and Elive Linux. I think it's Elive. Anyway, Intel has announced some new open source firmware. KDE released some info for the next version of the Plasma Desktop environment. Later in the show, we'll discuss some legal news regarding the Internet of Things bill in California. And we also got some really exciting news for Linux gaming. Uh, spoiler alert, Valve's Steam Play is now available to everyone in the stable release of Steam. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital, and this is your source for Linux news. Before we get started, I just want to take a minute to mention the Tux Digital Patreon. Uh, Patreon is a platform that allows you to contribute to your uh, creators uh, on a consistent basis, typically monthly, and it helps creators as well as get perks and benefits for becoming a patron. Now, I've mentioned Patreon multiple times, probably every episode at the end and like the outro type thing, but it's rare that I mention reasons why to become a patron. And I realized that during the recording of this episode when on, in the live stream, uh, a, a viewer mentioned I should probably explain why you would want to become a patron in the show, so I'm doing that now. So thanks for that suggestion. So if you would like to become a patron, you can get a bunch of benefits. So, for example, behind-the-scenes updates, access to patron-only polls, where I ask questions about you know the future of the channel, the future of the show, things like that, where you could provide your opinion on that. Uh, access to patron-only content. For example, when this show is done, I record, I do a live stream that could be anywhere between two to four hours long, sometimes longer, and it's a you know full interaction between the chat room and myself, and we talk about the various different topics. Each topic that we talk about, we actually take a little a little bit of time to discuss it with you know everyone is available live, but that video is not available after the stream. However, if you're a patron you can get access to watch that full live stream if you would like to because there's like it's an uncut raw type of experience so if you'd like to check that out you can as a patron and you also get access to early or early access to vid to new videos so when there's new videos on the on the channel uh, you'll get access you know a couple days or so maybe even a week before the show the video gets published and there's also uh, discount codes for the Tux Digital merchandise like the Linux is everywhere t-shirt so each tier gets a certain gets a different benefit. So the higher, the bigger tier you're on, the bigger the discount is. Because if you're already contributing to the channel, I don't. I think it's kind of weird for them for me to also want you to pay full price for the shirt. So or the merchandise anyway. So this is a way to uh, thank you, extra thank you for wanting to support the channel as much. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more, you could go to tuxdigital.com/patreon. Up first in the show is some pretty big news, but not like terrible news or anything, just just pretty big news. Linus has announced that the 4.19 release candidate 4 has been released for the Linux kernel. And also, definitely more interesting and pretty shocking actually in a way, is that Linus has announced that he will be leave, taking a temporary leave from maintainership. Now he's not leaving the maintainership of the kernel he's just taking a break essentially and it's when he said he said this is going to be uh, starting for the rest of the 4.19 cycle um, and that he would be back for the 4.20 cycle so Greg Crow Hartman or Greg KH will take the rest of the Linux 4.19 cycle 
Um, some of the interesting things is is he's gave multiple reasons of why he's doing it, but there was one reason that I thought was interesting that it's not really like the core reason or anything. It's just I wanted to like it's just an interesting thing. Um, it's Jet. He said is he try, he's trying to overcome like the crude remarks that he's been known for, you know, for the like making for people sending pull requests and things like that. And it says I'm going to take time off and get some assistance on how to understand people's emotions and respond appropriately. This is not some kind of I'm burnt out, I need to just go away break. I'm not feeling like I don't want to continue maintaining Linux. Quite the reverse. I'm very I very much do want to continue to do this project that I've been working on for almost three decades. So this is a interesting thing because he you know he's if you're not aware most of the time when people talk about Linus or the, you know, do um, articles about him, it is typically like attack pieces on him being um, abrasive or rude or crude and things like that. And they'll, t they'll, there's been a lot of, and I don't know how many, but there's been a significant amount of articles and stuff like that where they would argue that he shouldn't, because of the way he, you know, acts and responds to people that he shouldn't be the guy at the top of the project because it should be more a professional person or whatever. And this happens um, a lot. Like the vast majority of the time when you see an article about him, it's usually a hit piece. It's sometimes, uh, they sometimes get it where they're, they're not trying to attack that part of him. But most of the time, like at least lately anyway, it has been roughly, you know, just topics about him, you know, being abrasive. So it's interesting that he's decided that he wants to take a break and uh, address some of those uh, complaints. And I think it'd be definitely, it's, it's. I don't have a problem with the way he's been for uh, the past, but I do think that it's a good idea for him to re assess the situation and adjust his approach to communication with various different people on the mailing list because it, it, it kind of has a, um, a negative light on the project itself and um, it would also make it where these hit pieces would be very rare and or maybe not even exist which would be nice because even more talking about the kernel itself or the project and the operating system based on the kernel or you know things like that rather than his you know like articles about his attitude and stuff you know I think it's a good idea and um, I'm glad that it's only going to be temporary. Uh, so, and I do think that Greg KH would be the the best option to you know take the reins for now. Uh, anyway, it's interesting. If you want to read the the announcement and the rest of the uh, message from Linus, you can find a link in the show notes. Nextcloud 14 was released, and this comes with some two major security features. Uh, one of which is very interesting. And first of all, they, they added uh, two-factor authentication, a new structure called Gateway. It enables the users to access the cloud files using secure messaging apps like Signal and Telegram. Those are pretty cool. Well, Signal's more secure than Telegram. Anyway, uh, some SMS gateways and even YubiKeys and stuff like that. So that's pretty cool that they added that. But they also added something called ver video verification, which requires a user to use a video call to get a password. This eliminates the risk that a you know person like a hacker or whatever will have, with access to the user's email or mobile device specifically could snoop into the cloud-based system because it'd be checking like basically a, a face ID type thing. 
that's pretty cool and also weird, but also, you know, cool as well, you know. Just, I, I kind of want to see how it works. Uh, anyway, in addition to these security enhancements, they also have other improvements to make an xCloud easier to use and things like that. So if you like for accessibility, one of the things that uh, an xCloud has always had a problem with is accessibility. So it's really cool that they have added that because it makes it easier for people who have like uh, visual disabilities to be able to use NextCloud much more easily. So that's cool. They've also added new like themes to make it better for them as well as keyboard accessibility improvements and all kinds of stuff. So NextCloud 14 is looking really cool and some really interesting features. So if you want to check it out, you should uh, check the show notes for a link. Up next in the show is the release for Wine 3.16. And actually, well, the stable release of Wine is 3.0.3, when 3.16 is the development release. But there's some really cool stuff in the development release, so if you were wanting to test things, you could use that. But just keep in mind, it is development release. Um, they do a lot more development releases than stable releases, as you can tell. So anyway, the dev version includes an initial implementation of the OPC or open packaging conventions and it adds support better support for CSS properties within MS HTML uh, and 43 other bug fixes so one of the cool things that I like about it is that every time there's a new development release for wine there's also support added for different uh, games support so that they'll they'll improve the support for different games and including this one has Call of Duty 2 fix, Resident Evil 7 fix, and the popular Warframe launcher. So those are pretty cool. If you'd like to learn more about uh, this particular release, you can find a link in the show notes. Up next in the show is Git 2.19 was released. And Git 2.19 has some really, really cool features, especially like the range diff. So you can have you can have like diff checking where if you're not familiar in, in programming or actually any kind of file if you have one file and you have another file you can use diff as a command tool to do um, you know see what's the difference between the two and with git you can kind of do that already but not really and this gives you a lot more control about the ability uh, with the ability to like see the differences between like so git will keep track of differences but this allows you to easily through the command tools much easily, much more easily, like to see what's different and things like that. And there's also new compatibilities that you can use, like grep functionality in Git. Uh, so you can like search through your Git directly with like not using grep, but something grep-like, which is pretty cool. Uh, so there's a ton of other improvements as well, like some better support for uh, newer versions of Apache with the InstaWeb stuff. And there's also a new a rewritten Submodule for C implementation and a lot of other things for like Python compatibility and all kinds of stuff. So if you haven't uh, seen, you know, checked out the Git and you are using anything really at all, anything else um, for your programming and stuff like that, especially if you're using SVN, why? Anyway, uh, you should definitely check out Git and you find a link to that in the show notes. Up next in the show is Timeshift 18.9.1 was released. And there's actually been multiple versions for the past couple weeks or so that I wanted to talk about because they've added a lot of uh, interesting features. But more importantly is Timeshift, if you haven't heard of it, is a really, really cool tool because it allows you to do system restore uh, through Linux. And it does it very easily too. So you can, you can create snapshots and then restore them and 
there's a there's many different ways to do this in Linux, like rsync and things like that. Or um, you know, there's backup things. Uh, back in time is one. Uh, all kinds of different stuff that allows you to do this. But Time Shift does it pretty easily, and it does it really it does it really well because it uses some tools in the back end that makes it you know uh, more efficient and stuff like that. Depending on you know what you compare it to, but it's cool because it makes it really easy to do. It's anybody can just you know click the create button, make a snapshot, and they want it to restore it. They can just click the restore button and choose which one they want. Like that's very nice. So they, it's a nice tool because it's really easy to use and it works pretty well. Now, another thing I want to talk about in this particular um, application is because the developer of it, uh, Tony George, mentioned recently that he's going to have to start reducing the amount of time he spends on it because of the amount of um, work that goes into doing it and the amount of uh, donations that he's receiving to, um, you know, to to, con to continue working on it. So there's a lot of support needed, and there's a lot of de development needed, but there's not a lot of support. I mean, as far as like donations go, so he's uh, kind of putting it on a back burner. So I just kind of wanted to like let people know about it. If you haven't you know, used it, or if you're a Linux Mint user, you probably have used it because it's shipped by default in Linux Mint. Uh, so you know it, it's very um, it's a very useful tool and a very important tool. And I hope that people would be interested in like helping them out and, and contribute to TimeShift so they, they will continue to develop it as a you know as, as much as possible rather than putting it in like the, reducing the amount of time working on it. So if you'd like to check it out, uh, there's a link in the show notes. But because and also just to specify, he did say that there's he has no issues of having a like a large user base. There's lots of people that use it, but for some reason there's only like 0.1% of the user base that actually don donates to the project. So this is more of a, you know, kind of a, just to let you know that if you are interested in t something like TimeShift and or if you already use it, then uh, contributions to the, the project would be, you know, go really well. Because especially when uh, they, they'd be able to continue to work on the software, you know, more consistently and more effectively. So that's, there's that. They can spend more time on it, I guess. Anyway, if you want to find out more about TimeShift... Or you're interested in you know supporting them on Patreon things like that. You'll find a link to the project as well as their GitHub and the Patreon in the show notes. Up next in the show, Intel has announced some interesting news at the European Open Source Firmware Conference. That's that's a lot to say, and it is, but it's really cool. The announcement is for an open source project called Slim Bootloader. It's an EFI implementation for of a boot bootloader based on Core Boot and available under the BSD license. So Slim Bootloader is a secure, lightweight, highly optimized uh, bootloader that supports multiple operating systems. This is their, their description. It also includes functionality like firmware updates with UEFI. That's pretty cool. Firmware updates is, you know, nice, very nice. Currently only works on Apollo Lake platforms, though. Uh, there's no news on, yet on whether it will be made for other generations of Intel hardware. So it might just be like current or the next hardware and in future hardware and stuff like that. But we'll see if they announce anything else. If they do, I'll let you know. You can follow the show on Twitter and get the notifications if I don't put it in the show, like a next episode or something like that. Whenever they potentially provide that information, uh, I will post it on Twitter so or Mastodon. So you can follow the show uh, at This Week in Linux on either Mastodon or Twitter. Anyway, so we'll have to wait to see what ne what happens next with the project. But it's really cool that Intel's open source 
that you know this kind of thing they're putting this project out because this is a really cool idea because of the you know bootloaders are kind of a problem and not really but it's really cool to see that there's more options in the you know the, the open source part of it anyway if you'd like to find out more about this and the other open source stuff that Intel makes, you can find a link in the show notes. Up next, Plasma 5.14 has some beta news. So, you know, 5.14 is, is, is going to be released sometime next month. I forgot the actual, like the exact date. But next month, in October, they're going to be releasing uh, 5.14. And there's been a lot of stuff being you know done in the background for these, this release, including some improvements to Discover and... Um, by, by adding the firmware update feature for Discover, that's pretty cool. They also did some additional improvements to the user interface that makes it more uh, feel smoother. So, it, like the the transitions will be more like they'll feel smoother and feel more uh, responsive. That's pretty cool. And they rewrote a lot of effects for the Window Manager KWIN, and they made the 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 effects uh, feels more smooth and just look better overall. So that's pretty cool. Having a nice polish to the DE is really nice. Like I always, you know, anytime you make something feel more, you know, responsive and look better, always a good option. And they also added some new cons display configuration widgets that can be helpful for like um, this show or <laughs> other things like presentations and things like that. So that's pretty cool. Anyway, uh, if you're, you want to find out more, you can find you can go to the link in the show notes. But also, I found something in as, as well as from the KDE team is there's a new beta version for the uh, it's Elisa or Elisa uh, music player. I'm not sure how you're supposed to say it, but it's an interesting player because they're using the Kirigami framework that the KDE team used to make Discover, so and other applications as well. Uh, but it's it's interesting because they made a new version that you can try out if you'd like to. It's a it's a very beta. It's like 0.3 beta or something like that. But if you would like to find it, to check that out, it's also a link in the show notes. And the reason why I mention it is because it's interesting because they're using Flatpak as the delivery method. Um, and also there's another beta for the Cube email client, which is also using Flatpak. Anyway, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Up next in the show, California is set to regulate the Internet of Things, and or IoT. And this would be really interesting, even though you might not care about the you know, legal or politics or whatever. Uh, this is interesting because it'll be the first state in the U.S. to ever regulate Internet of Things. And if you haven't heard of it, um, as far as like, you might know Internet of Things of like Raspberry Pis or like the Amazon Echo and things like that. But if you haven't uh, like look really looked deeply into these products, they have typically like, I couldn't say like what percentage or whatever, but a vast majority of these products are absolute trash when it comes to security and privacy as far as being updated at least. Like, as far as privacy, uh, they they typically take as much data as they can, so there's that, but as far as security-wise, they often don't update at all. Like, if they do update, they take a very long time, and if in vast majority of the time, they don't update at all, so it's kind of like a security, like a big security problem. So, California, is trying to push some regulations to have like get set a standard for Internet of Things security-wise and things like that. So the here's some information about this particular um, bill. Uh, beginning on January 1st, 2020, it would require manufacturers of Internet of Things or connected devices to equip the device with a reasonable security feature or features that are appropriate to the nature and function of the device. 
appropriate to the information it may collect, may contain, or transmit, and designed to protect the device and any information con contained therein from unauthorized access. So basically, it allows them to have it requires them to have a feature that has security aspects to make sure that there's you know, people can't get access to it, which would require them to have to update it as well. But they don't really specify that, really, and they don't really specify exactly what this would mean because a security feature that's appropriate to the function of the device could be, you know, that could be all kinds of stuff. So who knows what would actually come of this, and specifically a lot of people have said that this is not going deep enough and they would like it to go farther in as far as like what's required but I guess it's a good stepping stone for like the first time it's ever been done so I mean they I, I would I would like them to do it more as well because these a lot of these products are being purchased by people who don't know how to update the system and stuff like that and they never get updated and they're just basically that just just a security nightmare in a way so hopefully this will be helpful in some way you know at least in the in the long run because uh, California is a big state and it does kind of set precedent sometimes other people will use it as an example to uh, implement other laws themselves in their own states or uh, some might be used for like federal laws potentially who knows uh, it could be cool that this is happening we'll see in the long run what really happens with it uh, hopefully they puts a little bit more um, emphasis on the security and updating things yeah, but we'll see. Anyway, if you want to you want to read the bill or find out more about this uh, article, uh, you can find a link in the show notes. Something really cool happened recently uh, over the past couple of weeks or so, and just recently for Arch. But Arch Linux and KDE Connect did some AMAs on the subreddit for r slash Linux. This is really cool because they they basically if you're not sure what an AMA is, AMA stands for Ask Me Anything. And it allows you to, if you if you do an AMA, it basically means that if you can go in and ask whatever question you want, and they'll usually answer it. Uh, in this case, they asked about uh, people had they had an Arch thing, so asking the developers for Arch, uh, various different questions, and also the KDE KDE Connect team. So first up, the 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 Arch there was some of the questions were really interesting for Arch, and they were asking so like what kind of like manpower do they have, and where is assistance needed for the project. And they basically said they have a lot of people who are doing packaging, but they need people to do like packages or patches to those packages and debugging packages. So like they're saying that this is more of a complex thing. So the, the like majority of the people who are doing um, contributions are doing packaging because it's kind of like the it's very consistent. Whereas they would they they would need you know more manpower doing the like the testing and bug debugging and things like that. And another question was regarded the in, like how to get more involved with Arch, and their suggestion was to go to the IRC and just hang out and listen, which is an interesting point because um, if you wanted to get involved, like get familiar with a community or something like that, if you just kind of watch and pay attention to see what happens, you could kind of like get involved in that rather than just immediately jumping in and trying to help when you might not know where you want to help. So that way, it's an it's an interesting suggestion. Um, but, you know, fair warning, the IRC for Arch is not the most, you know, friendly to average users. Um, so, or not average users, but like beginner users. So keep that in mind. It's not, it's not horrible or anything, but it's not the most friendly. So anyway, keep that in mind. Also, KDE Connect 
had an AMA uh, two weeks ago, and it was just too good to not talk about it. So the KD Connect, one of the questions that someone said was really interesting because it, it, it conveys a, it's more of a question that also is answered in a different way than you might expect. And they said that the, the fact that the name is KDE Connect makes it seem to be exclusive to KDE. But in recent months, I've read that several non-KDE distros are planning to integrate Connect to their platforms. So they were saying that the, the name is kind of confusing. Do you have any intention to change the name of KDE Connect uh, when it gets more popular, for example, like on GNOME? And the response was, there's no technical reasons why it wouldn't work outside of Plasma. We got some negative reputation in this regard because some distros package it badly. And uh, they specifically pointed out Debian as one of those distros, which is pretty interesting. But anyway, the the thing that they didn't mention in this is that the reason why KDE Connect is named KDE Connect is more of a unfortunate misunderstanding rather than a na bad naming thing. So KDE Connect means the KDE community or KDE project made this particular project. It doesn't mean it works for exclusively on KDE stuff or KDE Plasma. If you don't know, KDE does not is not the name of the desktop environment made by KDE. KDE is the name of the community or the project that makes the desktop environment Plasma. Now, understandably, that would be it's kind of confusing because originally the KDE was the name of the desktop environment, so it makes sense that people would assume that's that what it, it refers to. Unfortunately, the reputation is just is, is inaccurate, and it's kind of KDE's fault because they did change the app. They changed the name of the desktop environment to Plasma in 2008 and didn't really tell people or give the or try to convey the message very much until like 2014. So there was many years, and they still aren't doing it that well. Um, so they need to work on that. But Plasma is the name of the desktop environment. KDE is the name of the people who make that desktop environment. And that's why the naming is kind of confusing, but at the same time, more accurate than not. So that's why they have really no intention of changing it, but also it's understandable why there's confusion. Uh, if you're wondering what KDE stands for now, since it's not the Plasma's, it's not, if Plasma's the name of the DE uh, rather than you know KDE, uh, it stands for nothing. Nothing at all, just letters. So my suggestion to the KDE team would be to create a backronym, which technically it's not really a, an acronym. So anyway, but create a meaning for those that don't that so people can find it in the search when they look for what it means to actually mean something rather than the current results will just tell them it's a desktop environment name. You know, food for thought there. Anyway, uh, another thing that they talked about that I didn't know was a part of KDE Connect, even though I've been using it for a very long time. It's really cool that they added this. I don't know when they did, but still. One of the Redditors mentioned that sometimes notifications are too much and they become very noisy. And they wanted to see if there was any solutions for that. Turns out they have a solution for that because you can actually control the application settings for each application on your phone and whether they have the ability to send notifications to your desktop or another device or not. So that's really cool. You just go into the plugin settings for your device, for your phone, and then click the control icon next to it, or next to the notification sync option. And there's a little icon next to that. And in there, you can choose which app, which apps on your phone have the ability to send to your desktop, for example, or other devices, 
and which do not. So that's really cool. And I'm now glad that I know that so I can go in and turn off the stuff I don't care about. <laughs> so anyway, if you'd like to learn more or check out the rest of the, uh, the AMAs, the, there's a lot of questions I didn't cover because, you know, for time, basically. Uh, you can go and check out the, you know, all the questions and the answers and everything in the link in the show notes. Up next in the show is Parrot Linux 4.2.2. And Parrot Linux is a security-oriented distribution that it's, it's kind of like um, Kali Linux where it's like pen testing and things like that. So you can do pen, penetration testing, con computer forensics, uh, reverse engineering, stuff like that is what these uh, this distribution is built for because it has these utilities that, that come with it for that thing. Uh, and it uses Mate desktop environment uh, with a with Debian as the, uh, the base. So this is cool because they have a lot of new features and they've, um, they've added some uh, updated things for firmware packages and stuff like that. Uh, they've updated to kernel 4.18. And I also want to talk about Parrot because they have an interesting approach with the way they handle the usage of the system. A lot of people, unfortunately, have used these penetration testing systems as their regular desktop, their desktop distro. And that's not what they're intended for. In fact, that's actually a bad idea. Um, because that by default, these penetration systems all all have root as the user by default so you always have elevated privileges in order to make some of these utilities work and that's not a good idea if you wanted to uh, if you wanted to, for just regular daily usage so for example these are kind of designed to break systems not be the most secure so some people kind of think of them in like because they can break other systems that they have more security in themselves but that's not really the case at all uh, they they're not intended to worry about their own stuff. They're worried about getting into other networks and other computers and things like that. So if you are using any of these penetration testing systems for your desktop, your regular daily driver, uh, don't do that. Instead, use something else. But what's really cool about Parrot is that they offer two different versions. They have the penetration testing system version of Parrot. They also have the home version of Parrot, which is a daily driver type distro. So that's it's really cool because if you do want to have Parrot as your main system or your daily driver, they do offer a version that is for that purpose. So that is pretty cool. So if you are interested in trying out some pen testing stuff, but you don't, but you don't really, you know, you don't want to use it as the main system, but you do want to use it from the same people, well then, uh, Parrot Home is a good option. They also have some an ARM version, which is pretty cool. So anyway. If you'd like to learn more about this, you can check out the link in the show notes for Parrot 4.2.2. Up next in the show is eLive 3.0 was released this week. And it's the, this is the first major version of eLive since about eight years, really. Like, they've been working for the entire time, but it's been about eight years since the big major release of 2.0, or 2.x, etc. So, if you haven't heard of eLive, eLive is a... Distribution built to for old hardware, so it it, it, it supports exclusively 32-bit right now. They might in the future add 64, but their focus is mainly 32-bit for old hardware. And they use Enlightenment as the DE. The interesting thing about that is they also use Compiz uh, as the compositor, which is the first time I've ever heard of Enlightenment using Compiz, so that's interesting. Um, they also have a custom installer for, that has like unique features, so they don't use Calamari or anything like that. Um, it's based on Debian, and they even have uh, 
some custom persistence features for their live USB uh, implementation. So that's pretty interesting. Now, it is they they do a lot of interesting things. And if you are using really old hardware and you would like to, you know breathe life back into them. Uh, Elive is a good uh, potential option for that you should check out. But I just want to let you know that they are using a pretty old kernel because it's it's based on an older version of Debian. So just keep that in mind. Um, but there is one thing else I want to talk about in the sense of like when you market something, you should typically use phrases that are accurate to your statement and also not exaggerating because it kind of seems weird. So if you are a part of the eLive um, project and you're watching this show, please keep these in mind and rephrase these because they're weird. So uh, some of the stuff that they mention on their uh, release notes and also on their website kind of are odd because they make out some pretty outlandish claims. So one of the release, something in the release notes, they said, eLive 3.0 is the most useful system ever made public perfect for daily use rock solid beautiful and full of hidden features you should list out what those features are not make them hidden but in anyway every simplified uh, and with every simplified aspect to make it usable for any user level okay those are cool except for the part where you said it's the most useful system ever made that's an extreme statement and you shouldn't say stuff like that because um, if they have 64 bit it's not very useful for them just you know anyway uh, he also says on their front page that they're virus protected and that's pretty true I mean Linux is very rare that you can get a virus on it but then they say something that's also kind of extreme and it says it is impossible to get a virus or it says it is impossible that a virus can exist here due to the how the security works internally it's not impossible for a Linux system to get a virus it is very very rare and very improbable, but not impossible. So you shouldn't say that term. Anyway, so in terms of like a distributions, marketing, things like that, you should absolutely try to sell it as best as you can for it to let people know like why they should use it. But there's 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 a limit where it gets too far. So these are a couple examples of I would have to disagree with these claims, and uh, you should probably well not should I guess I would suggest that you kind of like rethink the way you say like how you describe it anyway if you are using a 32 machine this could be a very good option for you so uh, you can try to link in the show notes for eLive 3.0 uh, and let me know what you think if you if you do uh, try it out for your 32 machine let me know in the comments below next up in the show is an interesting article from a Forbes contributor Jason Evangelo he has been testing out Linux for quite a while, like a few weeks or so, not a long time, but a reasonable amount of time. And he's been writing about his experiences on Forbes, which is really cool because it's a it's a nice it's a big publication talking about like the like actually going through the process of trying out Linux like legitimately and not just making these articles about how it's you know like you know um, well I don't want to pick out any particular articles that other publications are talking about because I don't want to give them credit for doing them but it's usually like uh, bash pieces where they're trying to attack you know the Linux philosophy or open source or something like that anyway it's really cool to see that you know Forbes and specifically Jason is making these posts and this latest post is about his first impressions of elementary and he says he readily admits 
that he's only been using Linux for about nine weeks, so it's not really a professional review or anything like that. It's just his impressions as a brand new user to see like how he thinks about the distro. And it's really cool because it's it's a nice um, it's nice to see this kind of this kind of thing because it's it's rare that you get a big publication doing something so in depth and actually putting in like that much effort to reviewing or not reviewing but like talking about Linux. So it's really cool. Anyway, so the first you know obviously the first thing you're going to talk about is the design of elementary because that's one of the most you know most talked about things. But he says it's crisp, it's highly readable and intuitive, and that's probably because most of the the they view design that they think that they're most of the design cues are inspired by Apple, which I'd probably agree because it's very Apple-ish. And he does mention that you really shouldn't need to tweak or customize Elementary because it's so beautiful out of the box. Um, that's actually kind of a limitation that Elementary doesn't really offer much customizations, uh, like on purpose. He doesn't even really talk about that, but it's just something to note. Uh, you really shouldn't have to. You shouldn't need to, but you probably shouldn't do it anyway because it might cause some instability things. So, uh, elementary is definitely a really cool distro, and it has really, it's really nice looking. But it's meant to be like use as is type thing. Anyway, he also provides some in his some his insight on the app store and like the pre-installed browser, which is Epiphany. Um, he says, overall, software is on the lean side. I'm puzzled why a suite like LibreOffice isn't included for productivity. Uh, that said, it's also easily accessible with a couple of clicks in the App Center. Uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, it, it makes sense that they don't because they want to keep the ISO lean, and not everybody needs an Office suite. Like Personally, I rarely use Office suite. I have it installed, but I rarely use it, so why do I have it? I don't know. Anyway, the review is pretty fair. And it's definitely worth reading. So if you if you would like to, you can find a link in the show notes. And it, but overall, he gave his conclusion was for people curious about Linux, this and Ubuntu are an ideal place to start. If you're used to Apple hardware and you would want something that's stable out of the box, stays out of your way, and makes you feel at home as a Mac user, then Elementary OS is a great option. Um, I'd have to agree. Those are pretty good points. So if you'd like to read more of the article, you can find a link in the show notes and I just like to say this again it's really cool that uh, Jason is taking time to uh, get to know Linux in the way he is so good on you for that I guess up next in the show is Android's not very secure it's uh, not good news so in this case for example the American Consumer Institute has given some details about a report they gave for the issues with unpatched open source code in most popular Android apps. And the thing is not that the patches are not available or that the apps couldn't do them for whatever reason. It's just that they don't do it. Now, it turns out that 32% or 105 of the top 330 most popular apps in 16 categories were sampled and 19... And, and, and here's the thing. On average, mo these apps had upwards of 19 vulnerabilities per app per app 19 problems that's that is a pro that's definitely a security problem so it's hard to argue with people who point these out it it is a thing for sure and they say the vulnerabilities were broken out into the, the level of severity 29% of these problems were critical and 14% were rated as high so 29% of the vulnerabilities found were critical problems that they should have like drastically go and fix them 
and they might not be doing it. Well, they definitely are not doing it. So there's actually sometimes people will talk about how, you know, open source, you know, there's these patches are not being, you know, they're not ready and stuff. It's usually people are not implementing these patches that are probably ready. Like a lot of the time you'll see these things where and these Android apps or even other like Internet of Things stuff like we talked about earlier, these patches exist. They're just not going through the process of actually applying those patches. And that that's the problem, typically most of the time. I mean, even in in this case, they even found a lot a lot of vulnerable apps, including like banking apps, like uh, Bank of America and Wells Fargo apps have massive problems, uh, which is not shocking. You know, the types of apps that should have the most security known to man, and you know, should they they should be t- spending as much possible time they could on security, aren't. And I'm not really surprised. But anyway, this um, this article. Um, the, the consumer reports they all, they they did um, suggest some potential solutions. Um, do threat modeling, you know, and in, in, include security and product requirements. Yeah, require security efforts put in. That's good. That's a good one. Provide secure code training for Android developers. That's good too. And this is kind of like a go- like suggestions to Google things like that. Do security testings of their apps on a regular basis. That's. <sighs> They're not doing that. Uh, fix identified vulnerabilities as they go. Um, yeah, got to be good. It, basically, it's have good security structures in place when you make software and not ignore problems that you find. That's their solution. The problem is they're not. They're choosing to not do them. So, anyway, there's that for you. Up next in the show is some Linux gaming news. Valve's Steam Play has been released to everyone. That's right. It's no longer a beta-only option. It is now available to anyone who uses Steam on Linux, which is awesome because, uh, you know, naturally it's great that people can get access to play different games that they want to play, uh, even if they're Windows games. You know, that's awesome. But it's really cool that they rolled it out because I didn't even realize it was rolled out until someone mentioned it, and I went like, oh, it totally is. I can use it because I didn't sign up for the beta yet because I don't have any Windows games because, you know, the whole no tucks, no bucks things. Anyway, it's really cool that they're doing it now that you can use, um, you can as a stable user of Steam, you can now use Proton stuff. And in the newest version, they've added full screen Windows by default for these, you know, these Windows games or Proton games. The performance for the timing of APU, the APIs in the CPU limiting uh, scenarios has been like drastically improved, which is cool. They've added some compatibility compatibility fixes for games that have Steam integration, and they've updated support for D, uh, DXVK or the DirectX Vulkan uh, bridge, basically or translator, and a lot of other things, including some bug fixes for VR games and stuff. Really cool stuff. I'm I'm really happy to see that Valve has put. It's not even been that long since they announced the Steam Play Proton, and it's already out of beta. That's crazy. Anyway, really cool. Next up in the show is the Steam Play compatibility reports for Proton, and this is, you know, still some more Proton Steam Play stuff, and it's very cool. And and this is even more cool because this is the community supporting the uh, the initiative for Proton and Steam Play. So essentially, this website has the a, a lot of people are testing games in for Proton and see if they work and then grading them on a certain level to say, 
you know, this is a good, this is a good game that you can try, you can play right now. And, um, this is really cool because they have a ridiculous amount of games that are like almost 2000 games have been supported and are actually like totally playable. Um, you know, perfectly fine. So steam first, when they first announced this, they only offered 27 games, but now there's almost 2000 games that are having a level of, you know, you could totally play it. No problem. Not, not exactly, not 2000, but close. Anyway, so this is fantastic. And the community website, I'll have a link to the show notes if you want to go check it out. And they have an ability to do browse the games that are available, and they give you a level of how well they've been playing and what they're testing. And like, so they have multiple levels of platinum, gold, silver, and bronze, and those are the grades. Then they also have one called Borked, which is fun, because that just means it doesn't work at all and not worth it. But the other options, uh, platinum means that it runs perfectly, which is cool uh, that they have this best because it's not. You can also you need to look to see how many people have said it works perfectly. You know, there's that. There's that. Just warning. Uh, but most of the time, uh, the people have said that when they look at something that goes as platinum and they test it, it did work for them fine. So that's good. But they also have gold, which means it runs perfectly after tweaking it a little bit. And then they have silver, which runs with minor issues here and there. And bronze means it runs, but it crashes sometimes randomly. So if you would like to contribute, you could actually find a link in the show notes for this website. And any games that you have tested, you could go and let them know and put your uh, testing on this, the uh, spreadsheet. or the, uh, the You can submit it to the website to help other people know what's working for you. And this is really cool because you know anybody could anybody who has any Windows-based games that would like to try it on Proton can just you know try it out with the stable now, so it's good to go there. Anyway, it's pretty cool. If you want to check it out, there's a link in the show notes to the Steam Play compatibility reports from the community. And finally, this week, GamingOnLinux.com did some really interesting review or interviews with a lot of people from that are working on, uh, for example, uh, game porting with Steam Play and a DXVK developer and also a developer from itch.io or itch.io. I'm not sure if it's itch.io or itch.io. I don't know. I like. I want it to be itch.io because it's fun. Anyway, there's a lot of uh, interviews. These interviews are really cool, so if you're interested in checking them out, I'll have a link to, the, to each one of them in the show notes, but I wanted to talk about a couple of them because it's really cool. Like, for example, the um, Ethan Lee is a game porter, and he has done uh, like over for, porting over 40 games or so, and that's really cool. And he he gave uh, in his opinion on what is happening with Proton and Steam Play, and essentially um, he is for it. And also, he's the developer for the FNA, which is the free version of, of Microsoft's XNA, XNA Game Studio for indie development. So that's really cool. So he's he knows his he knows what he's doing, kind of thing. So it's really cool to get his perspective on the topic. Um, but what I what I what I want to talk about his one of the questions was what are, what is like what is your opinion on the experience of you know being a porter and things like that and so how this would affect you and his response is that essentially he is for it because one of the things that he like had to experience when he was trying to convince companies and developers and distributions or distributors to make a linux version is that they just laughed at him because there's not enough they considered not enough people to care and why bother so his point his point was really interesting i thought it was a really good point was that it's a lot easier now to get people to take Linux seriously because if Valve is taking ser- people Linux seriously in this, you know, providing Steam Play and Proton, you know, nobody laughs at the power of Valve, and that 
is a really good point that I know I didn't even think about until I read this, this interview. So if you want to learn more about, you know, we'll watch, read more about this interview. You can find a link in the show notes. Another thing is that, um, the developer of DXVK has said that a lot of stuff about Proton is actually uh, guided the way that DXVK is being developed. So uh, DXVK is, is a part of Proton. So it's interesting because he's also been contracted by Valve to work on DXVK. And there's you know a lot of he said there's um you know what is the involvement of Valve and he and the developer said or Philip said that um a lot of the things that are in VXVK might not even be there if it was just up to him to decide and valve requested him to do these things like the VR support, you know, things like that. You know, so it's pretty cool to see, you know, that kind of behind the scenes aspects of that, you know, the, the DXVK project. So also go check that out. The itch.io, itch.io, I'm gonna go with that. I just like it. So whatever the itch.io interview is also really interesting because they're talking about the um, the redesign of the itch.io itch.io client and the there's more it's more than just a redesign it's like a whole re-engineering so they've changed a lot of stuff and it's just like the the amount of potential that the linux gaming scene has getting so like so recently is just anyway i'm super excited if you can't tell so if you want to read the rest of the interviews you can go to the show notes or gaming on Linux to find them yourself, or you can just go to the show notes and get the link directly to the, each interview. So, anyway, uh, great job for to Liam for making doing these interviews. It's really interesting. So, thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the channel. We have multiple ways you can contribute via PayPal, Patreon, or even affiliate links by going to touchdigital.com slash contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to touchdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere. Or if you're in Europe, you can go to touchdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere EU for shipping from Europe. If you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show. Just a reminder, the show is live every Saturday, so join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week. The stream time is different each week, but you can find out what the time is for that week's show by going to tuxdigital.com slash thisweekinlinux. If you scroll down, you'll see the scheduled time as well as a time zone converter to make it easier to see what the time is in your area. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital, and as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.